Good morning, Collective Church. Uh, Pastor Ryan here from my living room as you're in yours. Uh, most Sundays I normally say good to see you um, or good to be with you. And so for the next few weeks, um, we're just going to have to figure out what, what we say. And so in the meantime, I guess it's good to be streamed by you. Um, we'll go with that one for now. Well, it's good to be here, uh, even in the midst of everything that's going on. I'm excited to, once again, study the Bible together as we do each week. It has been an insane week, and you don't need me to tell you that. On a global level, we have experienced news going at such a breakneck pace that it has been almost impossible to consume and keep up with. On a global level, just insanity. Even more so on a personal level, you and me and, and all of us in the collective thing have had such different weeks. For some of us, we've been figuring out how to do this thing called working from home, where whether that's uh, just the, the whole nature of working from home or working from home with roommates there or a spouse there or kids there just brings so much complication uh, and anxiety and impatience into the situation. Or for others, there's an anxiety and fear of being at home but not working. The, completely different type of emotions that are being felt by those of you that that's your experience. At the same time, some of us are trying to figure out how to survive and live uh, trapped up with our spouse and kids for day on end. It's just, you know, it's it's become a whole new thing. And others of you in the place where your, your great challenge in this season has been bunkering down in your home or your apartment by yourself. And the emotions and anxiety and even depression that can come from that. We are all going through and coming to today and this moment from such different places that um, it's just it's it's a, it's an interesting time to be here. And so my hope today is that as we look at Mark chapter two together, that we might find some moment of rest and reprieve and also going into the deeper places of our heart in this moment to getting at what we truly need to hear. So that's been my hope in preparing for today, and uh, I hope that, uh, that that God meets you uh, through Mark chapter 2. But like I said, Mark chapter 2, that's where we're going to be, and so if you have your Bible with you, you can open there. Uh, here on the little uh, you know online service thing that we're using, you even have um, a little Bible um, tab that you can click on, and uh, you can read um, along with us. And so Mark 2 is where we'll be on that, and reading from the ESV translation as we usually do, if you want to drop down and Make sure it's all synced up. Um, but in the meantime, as some of you are kind of tapping your way over to that, what I want to do is just take a moment to begin our time together in prayer. That as we get started today, that we might find uh, some sense of rest coming from the uh, anxiety and fear, depression, confusion, impatience, everything that we're emotionally going through. I just want to pray and allow ourselves to come at home to the place that we're at right now, the emotions that we're feeling, and just invite God to be with us. And so let's just open with a time of prayer today. God, would you gather each of us now to be with you, as you are already with all of us. Soothe our tiredness, quiet our fretfulness, curb our aimlessness, Relieve our compulsiveness. Let us be easy for this moment. Oh Lord, would you release us from the fears and the anxiety which grip us so tightly, 
and the expectations and opinions that we so tightly grip on. Help us to release, that we may be open to receive what you give, to risking something genuinely new, to learning something refreshingly different. God, gather us all here now to be with you as you are. So where we're going today in Mark chapter 2, normally uh, when we gather together, I kind of read the, the whole passage and then we jump into individual portions. Today, for the sake of kind of preserving the story and letting its twists and turns unwind as we go, we're going to read it all um, as we go, a um, couple verses at a time, but a roadmap of where we're going today. Uh, Mark 2 is a simple story, verses 1 through 12, where we're going to look at a simple story of uh, in verses 1 through 5 faith in Jesus, in verse 5, forgiveness through Jesus, and then in verses 6 through 12, the authority of Jesus. Faith in Jesus, forgiveness through Jesus, and authority of Jesus. And how this all has far more implications on the week that you've just gone through and the moments that we're about to go through. And you and I probably think when we hear words like faith, forgiveness, and the authority of Jesus, there is far more at work here than maybe you and me assume. At least that's what I found over the past week. Uh, as usually, uh, my notes are um, on the Sunday page, but um, also there should be a little tab there for some of the quotes and references that I might make if that's more helpful for you in place of how we normally use slides when we gather together. But why don't we jump into Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and let's begin to see the simple story of faith, forgiveness, and authority. Look with me in verse 1. And when he, he being Jesus, Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it, report, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered there so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, near to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which there's a paralytic laying. And when Jesus saw their faith. Now stop here. So the story that's developed is we're in the middle of the season of ministry that Jesus has been doing in and around Galilee. He comes back to Capernaum, staying at most likely Peter's house. And uh, he's doing some of the things that Jesus does. He's preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God that's coming in him. And as this is all happening, uh, there you know, begins to be maybe some dust and dirt falling from the ceiling and, and, and then light shining in through the roof. And then this hole gets bigger and bigger as we now see this bed coming down. And it's interesting in verse 5 is that what Mark writes is when Jesus saw their faith. And this is interesting for two reasons. The first is Jesus seeing faith. Faith is not something that we usually refer to as a, as a outside visual thing. Faith is normally an internal. It's Mental assent, you know, it's the things that I believe about the world or the opinions that I have. What my faith is in is like an inward trust. Mark here brings in a new way of thinking about faith because what does Jesus see? Well, Jesus doesn't seem to have some kind of, you know, superhuman ability to look through their, oh, I see in their hearts the faith that they have. I mean, in a moment, we're going to see that Jesus like more or less reads the mind of the scribes, these people that are there at the part of this, this gathering with them. So why wouldn't Mark say that he read their minds and could see their faith if faith was a mental thing? He says they saw their faith. And what does Jesus see that Mark calls faith? Well, 
It's a hole in the roof, and it's a man being brought down. For Mark, in this story, faith is an embodied reality. It is an external behavior. Now, that does not mean that faith is not, first and foremost, something that we believe or something that we trust in, because in order to do something, that normally corresponds to something I think or believe about the world. And so those two are absolutely connected, but Mark is adding a dynamic here on faith that is not just what you think but it engages in how you live and behave. But that's a whole other sermon. The second thing is when he saw their faith, plural. You know, if we were reading the story and I was reading it today, what I would probably say is I, when Jesus saw his faith, the faith of the paralytic, the guy that's being you know dangled from the roof on a bed, that's the guy <laughs> that has faith. But Mark says their, plural, talking about both the paralytic man and his friends. Now, what's going on here is a, community of faith right here there's a whole sermon on on the church on you and me gathering together to follow jesus to bring people to jesus that is not a sole thing that we do but we use the faith of one another to bring one another to jesus there's a whole sermon that we don't have time to but what these two people are this community of faith is uh two examples of the driving compulsion and desire of faith, of mental. It, it is what is faith. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner in his commentary, his, his kind of you know writings on this passage, he says this, faith lives under one great compulsion, to get into the presence of Jesus. And so as you read this story, you have this great compulsion for the paralytic man, I must get into the presence of Jesus. It's the compulsive drive for him, no matter what gets in the way. And similarly, his friends have the same compulsion. He, our friend, needs to get to Jesus, no matter what gets in the way, whether that's crowds or crawling up on roofs, dragging him up onto the roof, whatever we need to do, we need to get him into the presence of Jesus. Faith lives under the compulsive need to get into the presence of Jesus. So let's look further at these two examples as we make our way through. So the first is the compulsive desire of the paralytic man to get into the presence of Jesus. Why does the paralytic man need to get into the presence of Jesus? His paralysis. <laughs> This is what's bringing him here. He meet, Jesus is healing people. And so he has a need that he needs healed. It is a deep need and compulsion that's brought about by his suffering, by his pain, by his vulnerability, by his lack. You and me are in a similar moment right now where we find ourselves, maybe not with a paralysis of our bodies, but in a vulnerable state, or at the very least, seeing the vulnerability of our world. We see just how vulnerable our world is, politicians, government, careers, our health. If I'm in, within six feet of the wrong person, we are in a vulnerable state. I went to the grocery store on Friday to kind of just gather a few of the things that we needed for the next few days. Well, after waiting in line for some period, our little local grocery store, going through the produce aisle was just empty. I mean, I'm pulling like milk off the cart as these guys are in the process of, of stocking things. You know, there's there's no eggs. The the you know uh, freezer aisle is is barren, and and this is not to compare um, the situation that we're in with those around the world. We absolutely still have electricity and running water. We have it so good in this moment, and which we should be grateful for. But the ordinary thing for me was when I need eggs, I go to the grocery store and I get eggs. I have a system where I don't feel in need, ever. The only thing that separates me and need is me driving in my car or me logging onto Amazon. We're in a moment where that need is a little bit 
bigger, and it brings something out of us, and it is this. I am not in control. You are not in control. It's true. All of your life, you feel it very, very profoundly right now, don't you? I know I do. It's part of the anxiety that's you know, constantly within me that I keep having to bring to Jesus. I mean, here's the thing. This, this lack of control, the pain of feeling this way, well, I'll let C.S. Lewis put it uh, really well. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he writes, pain insists upon being attended to. Think about when you get a cut or a bruise. You have to look at it. You have to, you know, you, you, there's a natural, what, what, what is that pain? You have to attend to it. And he goes on to say that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences. But God shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In this moment, there is a megaphone that God is rousing a deaf world to see their great need for him and for Jesus. And so that pain, hearing that, it has to be attended to. And so the question is, how do you attend to the pain as you feel it? Is it fear, anxiety, constantly monitoring you know, the news cycle, whatever, you know, hoarding, whatever it might be, constantly going to the grocery store, boarding up the wall, whatever, what is your response to the pain? I know for some of us, it's not necessarily the anxiety or fear that comes out. Rather, it's that we drown out our fear. Well, everything's going on out there in the world, but here I'm safe inside my house. And so I've got my Netflix queue to keep me warm. And I've got video game. I've got whatever it might be. I've got like social media, whatever it might be. That instead of just naming the fear and our need for Jesus, we drown it out with distraction. We, we turn up the volume on everything else so we don't hear the megaphone of Jesus. Those are the responses. Fear, anxiety, or drowning. Or, as we see in the paralytic man, and the response that you and me are invited into is that the faith that desires and runs or allows itself to fall into the presence of Jesus. So the question is, how can you and me run into the presence of Jesus or allow ourselves to be lowered into the presence of Jesus this week? We spent three weeks on the ancient practice within Christianity of silence and solitude, of stilling, silencing our own souls so that we can pray and be with Jesus. And right now, you have, you and I have an ability to practice that in ways that we, we probably wouldn't be able to. Prayers that as we go into silence and solitude, we can find renewal for energy, for love and compassion when we're locked up in our houses with others or love and compassion in community with the God who is love when we feel alone and isolated, where we can relinquish our fears and we can rest from everything that's going on. We can, we can go to that space. We can read scripture and study it. We can FaceTime or Google Hangout or whatever it might be with our discipleship group. I know for me, the two great rhythms that have helped me to be with Jesus this week, and they're not super spiritual, Every single day at five o'clock, me, Aaron, and Emma, we go for a walk around the neighborhood and um, our dumb dog, you know, and, and you might get mad at me for calling my dog dumb. You haven't met him. Uh, he is so, that's a, whole, that's a whole conversation. We go for a walk every single day and whether it's a little 15 minutes around the block or sometimes even longer, 30 to 45, we breathe, we look at the trees, we remember that all of the news is not all that there is to the world. And there's a creator God who makes flowers like birds of paradise and he makes big giant palm trees and he makes grass that grows and clouds that float that we are this is my father's world to quote uh the old hymn and it has been such a good reprieve for me um, similarly just taking a break where i i've set 
my phone up where I don't check. I'm not checking the news one time a day at four o'clock. I allow myself to check in with the news and I just, okay, what's going on? What do I need to know about as I'm pastoring people and caring for you and caring for our family? Four o'clock, check in, and then I go take a walk right after that. And I allow that walk to be me relinquishing and reminding in the midst of all the fear. Whatever it might be for you, allow yourself to fall into the presence of Jesus this week. Uh, to find in him all that you need, which is where we're going. But next, the second example is that of his friends. And this is, this is the example that you and I as Christians have to attend to. You see, what, what his friends see is that he needs, our friend needs to get into the presence of Jesus. Maybe they have heard of Jesus, or maybe they've witnessed him healing before, and now we need to get to Jesus, but they realize that in this moment, it is quite difficult to get their friend into the presence of Jesus because of the crowds. So there are times when, as friends, we have to get creative in the ways that we bring the presence of Jesus to people. How did the friends, what was their creative way that they got their friend to Jesus when it seemed impossible? They literally tore open a roof, ropes, and lowered him down. That's a weird way to get someone to Jesus. It wasn't the way that they always did it. Most other people would just walk up to Jesus normally. But when they couldn't get to the presence of Jesus for whatever reason, they find creative ways. So the question is, how can you and me be creative in this moment? How can we creatively bring people into the presence of Jesus? Uh, well, first off, now that Jesus, and this is a whole you know story of the Bible, Jesus now reigning and ruling alongside the Father in his presence, heaven, is that now God's presence is present to the world through you and me, his people. As through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we move in acts of love. That is, through the Holy Spirit, we seek and work for the good of others at cost to ourselves. That's what the presence of Jesus looks like. So how can we creatively do that in a season? Well, I'll just put it this way. This is what I've been thinking about all week. One of the ways that you and me can remove the roof for others is by staying under our own roofs in this season. We can care for the least of these. Care for those that, are, are, that have a hard time getting to Jesus or being around others right now because of all of this fear. You and me, by staying within our own homes, by sheltering in place or safer at home, whatever it might be. This is actually a way that we can love people. Um, at cost to ourselves. Some of you and me, we, I would love to go down to Boba Guys or go to Blue Bottle right now. I would love to go get, you know, go eat at a restaurant. Um, but even these little things like that, these little ways that are inconvenience, it, 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 is, it is a way of loving generously those that for them, even if they were to go out and everything was open, could lead to um, great harm. And even great harm for myself. It's also caring for myself and my family. Um, other things that we can do to take off the roof in the season. Um, we can be people of generosity instead of hoarding. And even what I mean by generosity is not just giving to neighbors. That is absolutely there. Here's another way. Don't hoard. We can be generous by taking only what we need and not what we think we do. Or not what we, we you know, planning for the worst. We just trust that today, you know, it's, it's, it's the prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, just trusting that. Yeah, this is a broken world and it's messy and we should be wise and, and have enough. But, but there's a level where you've got too much toilet paper, right? You've got too many cans of soup. At some point, it, 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 gets, it gets to where we're not trusting and we're not, we're not caring for others. Some other quick ways. Um, reaching out to our neighbors where we can um, do groceries. We can help with walking dogs. We can care for those. We can check in with those that we know might be more prone to loneliness 
or fear, we can actually check in with friends instead of just scrolling and haphazardly checking in on them. I've seen some of you posting on Instagram. Of, we've got dance parties that are happening across FaceTime. We've got hangouts. We've got all of these board games that you guys are all doing. These are the sorts of little ways that we can bring the presence of Jesus. But I would invite you. Invite your neighbors. Invite your coworkers into this space. We can't have neighborhood dinners, but we can have you know West Side hangouts. I don't know. Like think. My prayer is this week that you might find the creative ways for you to, through the Spirit, bring the presence of Jesus, a non-anxious life-giving presence. One story, and then we'll continue and we'll look at Jesus' example of what Jesus does when he sees this faith. But one example, one more example of what this looks like. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with some friends in Portland. They were all pastors from different areas of uh, California and Oregon. And so we were just talking about ministry, talking about um, some of us, this story, what it means to be the church in this moment. And one of the guys uh, there is a pastor in the Bay Area told a story that he heard from someone in his church that is really, just it, it fits within this story. You'll see why in a moment. Uh, so this woman uh, in his church, she was at the uh, Outside Lands uh, Music Festival in San Francisco. And this was three years or something like that ago. And uh, she's there in the main stage, outdoor, you know, festival. And um, it's Young the Giant is playing, and uh, it's this incredible, you know, first couple handful of songs. Everybody's engaging. It's the festival. Beach balls and everything's crazy. And she talks about how a few songs in, something shifts, and the attention of the whole crowd moves from the stage over to this large collection of people all gathered up, super close and huddled together, right? Not social distancing. On top of one another. And these people are all on top of one another and their hands are all coming together and they're gripping together the wheels and spokes of this wheelchair. And sitting in this wheelchair is this young man who by all accounts looks like a normal person with the exception that his legs don't work. And what had happened was this man was here to see young the giant and couldn't. There was something, people, getting in the way of seeing one of his favorite bands. And a handful of people saw this person missing out and said, this will not do. And so they together, one by one, hoisted, you know, maybe, you know, three guys at once, and they're, you know, doing the best they can. And then more and more people began to lay hands on the spokes and wheels and all hold this guy up. And you just see this picture of him with his arms outstretched, eyes closed, tears in his eyes as he's getting to experience crowd surfing in a way that people in wheelchairs don't normally get to. Might I offer that this is a picture of what the church, a community of faith looks like when she's at her best, when it's at its best. Is people who are, you know, what it, it, on, on paper, if I said, do you want to go to a concert and hold, you know, let's say, you know, 100, 200, you know, pounds above you for the whole concert, you'd say, heck no, <laughs> that, 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 was not, that would not be fun for me. And it would even, what if, it, and it gets in the way of you being able to see, no, I don't want to do that. Um, or what if you were the people behind the wheelchair, you know, this, this stinking guy's in my way. It's an inconvenience for everyone, but it doesn't become an inconvenience when it's motivated by love. And that is what we're called to do. We are called to be the people who hoisten up those that can't see for themselves, those who can't feed themselves, those who can't, whatever it might be, for themselves. It is a self-giving love. And this is all motivated by the fact that as Christians, we believe that you and I, that we were hoisted up. We were hoisted up when we couldn't see for ourselves. That we were brought to Jesus, not by the, only by the church, 
we were brought to God not only by other Christians who cared for us, prayed for us, and, and preached to us, whatever it might be, but that Jesus himself, God himself, got up underneath the wheelchair and sacrificially loved us. He almost let us get crushed underneath us, right? Uh, in order in order that we might see and be with God. I mean, this is what it means to be Christians, motivated by love, self-sacrificial love, because other Christians have given it to us and Jesus himself did. And so in this season, may we be those sorts of people that we run to be with Jesus and we run to bring others to him. Amen? And you can't say amen back, so amen. Thanks, guys. Uh, let's keep going. Mark 2, let's see. What does Jesus say when he sees guy being lowered? Faith, right? What does Jesus say? 2 verse 5, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. I keep touching my face. It's not good. Um, son, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus sees his faith and his friend's faith. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Now just think about this for a moment. If you're there, maybe you're in the crowd or you're one of the friends looking in from the roof or you're the man with uh, paralysis yourself and you're laying there and Jesus comes over and he looks at you. He sees your faith. You know, maybe his, his face changes because he sees the faith and it's this intense Jesus moment, you know, and he leans in and he says, your sins are forgiven. What would be your response? Is it a bad thing to have your sins forgiven? No. Um, but, you know, maybe you're one of the friends, you know, leaning into the roof. You just hoisted this, you know, guy in this whole bed, lowered it down. And you're, <clears throat> you know, Jesus, he, he has, he's, He's paralyzed. <laughs> like, that's great for the sin. He can go to the temple. That's not the issue. He can make the sacrifice. He needs you to heal his legs. So this just brings up a question. It's a twist in the story, right? M. Night Shyamalan or whatever. It's a twist in the story. What's going on here? It brings up a whole host of questions. Why does Jesus forgive him? Why that seems to be the priority for Jesus. Why that first? Does this mean that sickness isn't important to Jesus? Like that he's more concerned with the well-being of his soul and his spirit than, than his body? Does he not care about the material world, about sickness, about viruses, about paralysis? What does this mean? This twist in the story is meant to bring up a whole host of questions. I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit trail if we wanted to of the ways, the complex ways, that the Bible talks about the interconnectedness of sickness and sin. You see, for us, we separate. We put sin as maybe something that we do or something that we think. It's a spirit thing, right? That my heart, it's like I've got sin in my heart that Jesus needs to take out. And sickness is a, uh, it's a physical thing. It is viruses. It is cancer. It is things in my body. And, and for the ancient writers and for the writers of Scripture, the writers of Christianity, they do not see those things as being separated, but it is a complex relationship. If you go back in Deuteronomy and read the story of Miriam, she's in the wandering of the Exodus with Moses and the rest of Israel, and she doesn't like his leadership. So she begins to badmouth him. And because of that badmouthing and gossiping, she gets a skin disease, which is crazy, right? Uh, until she goes and then she apologizes. She repents and confesses to Moses, and she gets healed. Similarly, in Psalm 32, David commits a sin and he doesn't confess it to anyone. He doesn't bring it to God. In Psalm 32, he says that when I kept my sin within me, my, bone, my body wasted away. It's like my bones were on fire. So he almost gets this like feverish sickness because of the fact that he sinned and hadn't confessed it. 
So it seems like sin and sickness is actually really connected. But also, there's a whole book of the Bible called Job, where a man who never did anything wrong to deserve it, not only does he get sick, but he loses, you know, he has suffering of unmeasurable counts, family member, it, it just, it all falls apart for him. And the whole point of the book is this guy did nothing wrong to deserve it. So the complex relationship goes on. In John 9, Jesus and, and his disciples are walking and they go by a blind man. And this, uh, the disciples look at the blind man and they ask Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him, his mom, dad, grandma, grandpa? Who sinned that this guy's blind? And Jesus goes, he doesn't answer it. And he goes, actually, I think you guys, it, it's weird to me that you're so preoccupied with figuring this out. You know, actually, the reality behind this blindness is so that the glory of God might be seen. And then he heals him. So Jesus there in this story and in here shows that when it comes to sickness and sin, that maybe the individual is called to examine it, but it is not the responsibility of others. Similarly, viruses and plagues, as you read through the story of the Bible, have a very similar relationship. They're complex, interconnected, but by no means are we able to, or even called to, discern it. Sometimes plagues and punishment and viruses might be uh, punishment from God. Uh, Egypt, enslaving and murdering the children of Israel, God sends plagues, some of them being viruses and, and plagues. Other times it shows up, uh, Jesus talks about plagues as a sign of the times, that maybe his return and his restoration of all things is drawing near. Other times plagues and viruses are just talked about as being part of living in a chaotic and broken world. So all three of those things happen. Christians are not called to discern in those three things, but called to serve. As Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, that we are called to stay awake and stay at the work that Jesus has given to us, which is what we just looked at, to be the presence of Jesus, to love at great cost to ourselves, to love one another, to bring people to Jesus. We're called to stay at that work. And so Christians enter that tension of saying, it's not my job to discern, while we move in love and service. So to, to get back to Mark 2, though, here, all of that to say, it's just worth noting, Jesus does not explain the why behind the man's suffering. He does not give a reason for it. He doesn't go into the sick sin relationship. Okay, you guys have been asking questions for generations. Now it's time for me to give it to you straight. What he does is he sets aside all the assumptions, and he simply sees the suffering that has brought this man to Jesus. And he sees this suffering as the place where Jesus can give a response and a healing at his deepest level, the level of forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. Now, all this to say, in this season, whatever you're going through, whatever anybody is experiencing at the deep levels of suffering, that Jesus is so excited about not the suffering but the fact that this is bringing people to him in new ways that you are being forced to trust and go to Jesus in new ways and so come to Jesus this week in faith know that he's going to receive you but be prepared for the twist that as you come to Jesus you might be receiving a healing that's deeper than what you brought what what brought you to him Maybe Jesus has sin that he wants to bring out in this season. Deeper levels of trust that he wants to build up within you. That maybe, maybe the virus isn't the first and foremost thing that Jesus wants to deal with. Maybe there's something going on within the hearts and souls of our people that, that, that nothing, I, I don't, again, we're not called to discern. What we are called to do is for ourselves 
Let this bring us to Jesus and let him do his healing work. Now, this story is one where we find that for the paralytic man and for us, that forgiveness of God flows from the tenderness of Jesus. If you go back into Mark 2, you, you see that it doesn't just say, look at him go, your sins are forgiven. What does he say? Son. And this is not like, you know, him like <laughs> nickname or, you know, forgiven son, like let it go. Or like, you know, John Wayne, all right there, son. Like this isn't, it's the word in the Greek that Mark's writing in uh, for a uh, little child. Like, there's a word for son. He's going to use it in a minute when he talks about the son of man. Here he uses the word technon. It's the word for a little child. So Jesus, and he's not a kid. It's a, it's a man, is what Mark says. And so this is, Jesus is meeting this man in all of his suffering, in all of his pain with this deep tenderness. He sees in this broken body the story of a broken man who has been carried around his whole life, who has probably doubted whether or not God loved him because of his suffering his entire life. And so Jesus, he was motivated by this Deep compassion. Jesus does not forgive out of duty, out of some kind of just that he's nice. And if you come by faith, he has to forgive you. It's like, sorry, you know, you said the magic word. It is a deep love that is grounded in a desire. If faith is the compulsion that wants to be with Jesus, then this forgiveness comes out of a compulsive desire of Jesus to love people that need him. So the paralytic man receives forgiveness from God that flows from the tenderness of Jesus and what that grows into and blossoms into is boldness. Now, Mark doesn't include it, so this is a little little sidetrack, but it's going to be worth it. So each of the gospel accounts, they have their own account, oftentimes of the same stories, where different details might be included or left out. So in this account, Mark's is the longest. He's got the most details about the paralytic man being layered down. In Matthew chapter 9, in his account, it's just a paralytic man being brought to Jesus. He leaves out the whole roof thing um, because he's trying to get the, the way that some guys talk about. Mark is the technicolor gospel. It's action-packed. It's a comic book. Matthew's kind of bullet point sometimes. He's much more focused on the theology and the teaching of the moment. So Matthew doesn't include that, but he does include the son's uh, son. Uh, your, your sins are forgiven. But he includes something in what Jesus says to him that is worth hearing in this moment. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart. Tenderness of Jesus, the forgiveness of God, leads to a boldness within those who find it and receive it. This word, take heart, is actually one word in Greek uh, that Mark or Matthew is writing in. It's tharseo. And... Uh, it's this word that when you look at the way that it's used throughout uh, the, the, the Greek writings and even the Bible itself, it's, it means confidence and firmness of purpose in the face of danger or testing. Confidence and firmness of purpose in the face of danger or testing? Like, where do I find that right now? Like, I, I would love some of this take heart. It can also be translated as being deaf to threats, which is like so metal, deaf to threats, or having a heart like iron. There's some writers that say that it is what was spoken over gladiators before they went out to face off the lion or the other gladiator. They, you know, Romans smack them on the back and, you know, Tharseo, go get them, right? Tharseo, it is this complex, strong, bold, courageous word, something that you and I are in short supply of in this moment. 
I came across the Tharseo, um, this this take heart word uh, about two years ago in what was honestly one of the up, up to I mean honestly what what this season is becoming, but what was one of the most difficult seasons of my life up to this point for me and my wife Erin, and uh, it was this Tharseo, and not just the one in Matthew, but in its repeated use in the New Testament and in the Bible, specifically on the word in the mouth of Jesus. That Jesus is regularly the one that says Tharseo. And uh, and those seven statements became this foundation for me in that moment, in the long, uncertain, difficult season of life. And this week, in reading Mark 9, and just remembering, oh yeah, Matthew 9 is connected, take heart, it brought me back to that courageous thing. What's crazy is when I first came on staff at Collective as the teaching pastor, we were talking about what the teaching series would be for the fall. And it was either First Peter and uh, the way of the exile, or because we had seven weeks to do it, my recommendation is, what if we did the take heart passages? And after praying it over with uh, Lorenzo and Isaac, we settled in on, uh, let's do way of the exile, let's do First Peter. It seems like take heart is for a different moment that we'll use that at a different time, but we're not sure when. This week we started praying about Take Heart Again. And uh, after praying with them for the past week and um, just thinking it over, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take a pause from the Gospel of Mark for our little, you know, live service thing that we're doing on the internet for the next seven weeks. It perfectly fits within what, with what at this point was California's recommended break from gatherings of what was 250 and then went all the way down to 10 was for eight weeks. So it might be more, but for at least the next eight weeks, starting today, we're going to be looking at, and this is the first one, the take heart statements of the Bible, specifically of Jesus with one exception uh, that's going to kick us off into Easter. But that's what we're going to be doing. And it perfectly, it's crazy. It perfectly fits. It's either a great coincidence or maybe Jesus is up to something. And our belief as the pastors is that Jesus is up to something. But take heart next week. You'll find out more as we go. But let's get back to Mark. Because what we find is we go back to the, the paralyzed man, as we find that he gets a boldness from Jesus that comes from the forgiveness of God that's based in the, the tenderness of Jesus. But Jesus giving this forgiveness is a radical thing, uh, as we're going to see in verses 6 and 7 as we continue. Let's read 6 and 7 together. Let's see uh, the authority of Jesus. So verse 6, some of the scribes, that is the, uh, the Bible nerds, um, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So to summarize, Bible nerds, they know their Bible, the scribes. And so whistle goes, flag on the play, blasphemy, punishment of death, right? This guy can't forgive sins. Only God can ultimately do that. But there's a whole theology here where the Old Testament throughout Jesus' Bible would have said that uh, only God forgives because uh, all sin is ultimately against God. So all, only God can forgive sin. That's Exodus, uh, Psalm, Isaiah 43, Micah 7. Why? Because all sin is ultimately against God. If you go read Psalm 51, David, uh, after, I mean, basically what at best was him committing adultery, sleeping with someone that wasn't his wife, and at worst became something um, like political manipulation, uh, power manipulation over a woman, uh, impregnating her, and then using his political, you know, uh, coercion to have her husband killed so that he wouldn't get blamed for it. Uh, all of this happens, and when Psalm 51 happens, he finally breaks and confesses his sin. 
And in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. So what about Bathsheba, the woman? What about Uriah, her husband? What about the city of Israel? For God, for David and for the Old Testament, that yes, there is forgiveness that must happen between one another. But at the end of the day, there is a deeper forgiveness that can only come from God because all sin is ultimately, even when it's against you, and I is against God. When I am short with my wife, I am not only sinning against my wife, I am sinning against the God who made her, that she is in her image, the God who made me, of whom I am responsible for. And so Jesus can't walk around forgiving sins in the opinion of the Bible nerds because only God can do that. So what does Jesus claim here? Look with me in verse eight. And immediately Jesus, uh, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus does this Jesus juke. He says, which is easier to say? The sins are forgiven or it's easier to walk? So the, the thing is, is that it's technically easier to say that your sins are forgiven because it's impossible. There's no empirical test to validate that claim. You say walk, you can immediately check. Oh, that guy's walking, right? So get up and walk is Jesus setting up a test. If he has the authority to forgive sins, then he ought also to be able to have the authority to say that this man can walk. Which one's easier? Forgiving sin, well, okay, if walking is the harder one, I'm going to do that. Does the man get up and walk? He gets up and walks, and everybody freaks out. Now, this is all based so that, as Jesus says, they may know that the Son of Man has authority. So who's the Son of Man? Well, who's the one that heals and forgives? Jesus. So Son of Man is Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, if you want to put it that way. As you read over the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus regularly, often, and almost always refers to himself as the Son of Man. It is his favorite name for himself. Our friends at the Bible Project, uh, and in the, the notes, there's a link, have a video on this, podcasts, and even little write-ups and blogs. So if you want to look at this more this week, you can. But the Son of Man, this language comes from this crazy dream. Like what's G When Jesus says Son of Man, what's he talking about? It all goes back to this crazy dream from the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this dream. And as he's sleeping, he has this vision of all of these crazy monstrous beasts that are this like amalgamation of all these different animals. And they're, they're tromping along on the earth and they're breaking things down. They're crushing things in their teeth. They're ripping the earth apart. And, and it's just this picture of, for Daniel, how the world really is. You see, these beasts are a picture of humanity at our worst. When we gather together as empires, we become, not just as empires, but as individuals, at our worst, we become less than human. We become like beasts. We hoard up, you know, like, like animals. We fight over. We get violent. We Racism, whatever it might be, we're pushing down on others. We're stomping down. We're crushing. We become at our worst like these beastly animals. For the Bible's understanding, humanity and all of reality, because of humanity, it's not just that humans are beasts, but that humans as God's divinely set in place representatives of earth, our fall into beastly chaos 
is that we have pulled nature with us. Things like hurricanes and earthquakes and viruses are not just the random smatterings of an earth that is all chance, but is the due cost of humanity that have chosen chaos over trusting God's order. In moments like now, we remember and we see at new levels that all of these things, well, to put it simply, as John puts it, we live in the kingdom of darkness and that we are not only somehow, we have willingly walked into it, but also are its slaves. But Daniel's dream continues not just to be how the world is, but what the world needs, which is where we see, well, God first whoops the beasts. He takes the authority that they had, the beastly power that the world has, and he takes it, but who does he get it, give it to? Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, that's what I'm going to start calling my dreams. <laughs> what did you, you know, dream about last night? I saw in my night visions, right? I was like, I was at an all-you-can-eat you know, sushi buffet, and that was awesome, and no one was sick anymore, so I could live that. Whatever it might be, I'm going to call my dreams night visions now. So he sees in his night visions, uh, he says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, note that, that's going to be important in a second, clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Hmm, there it is. And he came to the Ancient of Days. That's a way of talking about God, the Creator God, the God of Israel. And he, the Son of Man is presented before God. And to the Son of Man, by God, was given authority and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His authority is an everlasting authority which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So here's the crazy vision that Daniel has. It's a picture of what the world needs. The world needs for the authority to be taken from the big bad beasts. And, and the vision of what he has it needs to be given to is one like a son of man, which is a way of saying, it's a special weird way of saying human, a man. A, a son of a man is a, it's a man. A son of a human is a human. And so he says, it's like this human who, and then he talks about this human as riding on the clouds, which was language in the ancient Near East for gods. Originally, it was used to talk about Baal, the god of the Babylonians, but then the Israelites took it and they started talking about their god as the one who rides the clouds. Or in, in uh, I think it's in the Ugaritic, is the Skywalker. It's just, that's, you know, it's awesome. I saw one who walked on the sky for the, you know, Star Wars nerds here. I saw a Skywalker, like a son of man. It's a way of talking about, so, oh, sorry, Bible nerd freak out. Riding on the clouds, that's a way of talking about divinity. He continues and says, that he was given authority and glory over all the nations, that is something that in the rest of the Bible is only given to God. And the Son of Man has a throne that he sits on along with God in the heavens. Who sits on a throne in the heavens? Only God does. So Daniel, who's a good Jew, who every single morning and wakes up and prays the Shema, that God is one, sees in this vision somehow, this one who is like a human, but like God. It is this, I can't put my finger on it, but there's going to be one who's this weird human divine being who is going to have all authority and all power, and he's going to rule with God and yet be God, and he's going to be human, but somehow, God, like, do you see where he's going? This is the seeds of what would later become the theology and the person of Jesus, that God becomes incarnate, fully human, fully God. And that does not take away from God being in heaven or the Holy Spirit being God, but becomes that God is actually the one who is a community of love, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is, it's Daniel's having a vision of everywhere the New Testament's going. 
And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is identifying as that son of man. He's planting the seed here for the first time in Mark 2 and going to over the course of this gospel and the rest of his gospels claim, that is me. I am the son of man whom God has given kingdom and authority and glory and I rule with the father and the father rules through me. And so if you come to me and trust in me and join my kingdom by faith, you can take heart because my kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It is these claims that got Jesus killed though. You see, his claim of authority, his claim of kingdom, it is what caused the beasts of the Roman and religious rulers to rise up and claim no, to crush Jesus on his cross. And the twist of the story, like Jesus not healing the paralytic man's body, but giving him the forgiveness of sin, the twist of the story is that Jesus being crushed by the beast of Rome and the religious leaders was the twist of him doing that so that he might free us from the beast, from sin, from chaos, from death. Jesus killed death by being killed by it. By On the third day, Easter is coming. He, is going to be res- he was resurrected over it. He spent 40 days with his disciples and then ascended. He rode the clouds as the vision that all of them had to sit at the right hand of the Father. It's Daniel 7 right there in the book of Acts and at the end of Matthew. And the promise is that he is returning to finish off chaos and death, the beast, not just in our world, but in us, to bring a kingdom that is without end. The people see this, and maybe some of them see where it's going. They know about the Son of Man prophecy, and rightfully so. They are astounded at what they see. This leaves an impression with them, an impression that would not just happen in the people of Capernaum, but go throughout history. Such an impression that this story is, up to this point, the earliest depiction that we have of Jesus in art. So you have pictures of Jesus. You know, we've, we've talked about sometimes, you know, Warner Solomon's The Head of Christ, where Jesus looks, you know, like a, like a white guy that's trying to, you know, sell CBD, you know, downtown or whatever. The, the first picture that we have of Jesus is, is this story. It's a very simple outline picture of Jesus and the man carrying his mat. It was found in the Dura Europos Church, which is in modern-day Syria, on the Euphrates River. So where they found this was um, uh, at the turn of the century, in the 1800s, I believe, or the 1900s, I believe it was the 1800s. Um, I had it in my notes, but I forgot. Um, that um, they found... Uh, in this, this city, the Dura Europas, uh, there's a little town, a little city of about 5,000 people, they estimate. And uh, they found in this city a little house that had been converted into a church building, just like what we're doing right now. Little houses that have all been turned into little church buildings. But in this little house, they had blown out one of the walls, and so they had turned their living room into a gathering space, and then one of the, the little bedroom spaces into a little baptismal uh, where people could get baptized and where they would go to get the Lord's Supper, to get um, the meal. And then on the walls, they had pictures and paintings of um, the parable of the Good Shepherd, of Jesus and Peter walking on water, of the three women coming to um, um, the empty tomb on the first Easter morning, the resurrection, of uh, the Good Shepherd Easter, and then, um, what was the other one? 
Um, Jesus walking water, good shepherd. Oh, and Adam and Eve. They went all the way back to Genesis. And this story right here, walking on water. The oldest one was this story. So whether this was graffiti that some little kid was scribbling, you know, during church time, they just kid, they told kids stories and let them draw on the walls, or this was specifically made so that people had pictures and illustrations as they were teaching the Bible stories, whatever it might be, this picture goes all the way back. Now, why am I talking about this? First, I'm a Bible nerd, and this stuff is awesome to me. Second is, just in reflecting on this, um, it was it was really helpful for me this week just to think about the story and to look into, to do a little history geek out for a little bit and to look in the, this picture further and the story of this church. So the idea is why was this city abandoned? Most archaeology is destroyed because cities just get built on top of one another. You know, you knock down a house, you knock down the church, sorry old ones, we build a new ones and that happens for generations and we don't have it. So why was this city buried in the desert available for us to find? Well, the city was abandoned in 256, uh, after the Persian conquest, where the con the city was conquered and the survivors uh, were sent into slavery, and the city just kind of was buried and you know left to the desert, where no one lived out there anymore. And so the archaeology of this space now reveals that what had happened was a multi-year siege, where the Persians had come up against the, this this Roman city. So it was like a Christian city; it's not a religious persecution thing. These Christians were caught up as citizens of this larger thing that the whole city was going through, which was a Persian siege. They cut off lines to food. They had cut off the, even their availability to run and get to the river for water. This was going on for years of them having to smuggle food in, of dealing with limited resources. As this Roman um, city was sieged by the Persians, there was even um, some of the first earliest examples of chemical warfare, of them using things like sulfur and making smoke grenades to throw over the walls. At one point, the walls fell, the Syrians came in, they killed the Roman guards, and they brought the rest of the city off into slavery into Syria. Now, why do I tell this story? In the midst of that story, we have no idea, we have the archaeology, we, we have the evidence that they were there, but we have no idea the names or the lives of the members of this church. What was their worship services like? What songs did they sing? Who was baptized? What was communion services like for them? We have no idea where these Christians went or even if they survived after the fall of this city. Did they go to slavery? What happened? We have no idea. But we have no idea also the creative ways that they found to serve the city of Dura Europos during the siege. I, I just, my imagine, if they have the same stories of Jesus caring for the poor, of people like the paralytic coming to Jesus and finding care, if there was a, sim a sermon, I mean, this is what moved me and he got emotional this week, because if this picture was there, um, and it was dated to about 50 years before um, the fall happened, that this church was happening, that they likely told similar stories like the sermon that you're hearing right now, the teaching that you're having. And what sort of ways did they find to serve and care for the people of their city? This picture and this reminder is just this reminder that we have no idea what happened to them. But as you and me stand today telling this story, remarking on Mark chapter 2, what we do know is that the church of Jesus did not stop. It has continued for the past 1,800 years, all the way to Los Angeles today. It has made it through, it has made it through wars. It has made it through bubonic plagues. It has made it through the Black Plague. It has made it through 
refugee crises and war. It has made it through everything. And regardless of what has happened to Christians along the way who have died in faith that Jesus might be coming or have wrestled through the deep work of suffering as they cared for others, the church just it will not quit, <laughs> right? You and I are floating. It's like we're like on a river float of this unstoppable rushing river of 2,000 years and billions of Christians who have found faith in, forgiveness through, and, and the authority, all in the authority of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who forgave and healed this paralytic, and that that story has been not just something that we look back on, but have received and found as true for ourselves as we find ourselves to be the paralytic and also his friends. Coming by faith to the Jesus who by his authority heals and forgives. Whether we gather in retrofitted homes on the river Euphrates or live streams in the city of Los Angeles, the church of Jesus keeps gathering however we can through all sorts of circumstances to receive and then embody and then to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus truly is the son of man that Daniel dreamed about whose authority is an everlasting authority, an authority that can forgive and heal back then when he was there and now through his spirit, whose kingdom cannot pass away and it shall not be destroyed as we read in Daniel 7. And that you and I as citizens of his everlasting, eternal, unshakable, immortal kingdom are now and forever safe. And so we can take heart. We can... We can be deaf to threats. We can have a heart like iron because our sins are forgiven and our Savior is alive. We get to float on this ancient and refreshing, cool river in the heat of the world that is this source of peace and love and faith and courage and hope as we float upon it. One that by comparison reveals the Promises of politician, the call of career, the faith of finances, the help of you looking in your health, and the silliness of celebrities singing John Lennon songs on Twitter as the stagnant, tepid ponds of delusion. And I love Will Ferrell. But John Lennon songs are so out of place in a time like this. What we need is something that will allow us to take heart and not simply sit idly by and imagine. We need something that will give us boldness, not to trust in the health of our bodies, but in the truth of the resurrection. And this all stems, our, this refreshing, cool, never stopping all throughout church history, it flows from the living headwaters that are the resurrected person of Jesus Christ himself, who resurrected over death. He is now reigning and will return to conquer the beast, to resurrect those who die in faith to him. And so you and I are able to take heart in a way that nothing else can offer us. So the invitation this week is to take heart, little children, because your sins are forgiven all stems from the authority of the Son of Man who has a kingdom that is unshakable when all the nations of this world feel like they're falling apart. Take heart.